1: Welcome back, everyone, to Conversations Live. I'm your host, Cyrus Webb. Glad you all could join us once again. But for our radio audience tuning in here at WYAD 94.1 FM and WYADonline.com, we're glad that you all can be with us. Also, tuning in to our online affiliates around the world via our podcast, we're glad you all could join us as well. We talk about a lot on this program about parenting and, of course, what a gift children can be, but it also can come with its own challenges and its challenges that some parents feel like they're going through all by themselves, where well, our next guest has written a book that addresses this in a really actionable way. It not only addresses the issues that parents face and the complications that can come with trying to provide the best for their children and give them especially the education and care that they need, but also what we can do to be able to assist them. We're excited to welcome Nate G. Hilger to our broadcast today. His new book is called The Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. We'll talk to Nate not only about the writing of the book, but also what led him to be able to start this conversation, to Share some really great examples. We're going to go through some of those in this conversation, as well as let you guys know how to get the book for yourself. Nate, really appreciate the time. Thanks for stopping by.
0: Thanks so much for having me on the show, Cyrus.
1: The pleasure is definitely on my. Well, Nate, I will tell you, my audience here in Mississippi knows I don't have uh, children of my own, but I work a lot with our school system here in Mississippi, and I do a lot in working with kids and parents. And so, this, when I first heard about this book, I was excited about it because I knew I had people I could talk to about (laughs) about what I learned from you and from the book. So, what has it been like for you to be a part of these conversations, Nate, to be able to help people not only address the fact that yes, we do expect so much from parents, but also making sure that they are able to get what they need when it comes to fulfilling that role in the productive way.
0: It's been a great, I mean, this is a, an area I obviously feel passionate about. So it's been great to chat with people on, such as yourself on radio and podcast shows. And um, have, we have a panel at Brookings coming up that I'm really excited about with some great scholars and activists. And uh, I, one area I've been really pleased to see a lot of excitement around is the idea that parents need a lot more political voice in a very bipartisan way. Um, I'm hoping I'm not the only person advocating for that and I'm hoping that a lot of people out there are hearing that and thinking well maybe we should start an organization that um, that advocates for parents and increases the political power of kids in our country. Yeah,
1: there, there is the money component, right, And This is something, and it's so interesting. I think until I have conversations like this, and I think about my own parents and growing up here in Mississippi, and how a lot of times we as kids, we don't think a lot about what it takes um, to be able to get us what we need, of course, especially even just dealing with education and the things we need to make sure that we're able to be productive. Is that also part of what you hope is that, that parents are seen as the unsung heroes that they are but also making sure that they're able to get the tools that are necessary to make success possible for them in their own lives.
0: You know, I'm, I'm hoping that in 50 years, we look back kind of shocked at to view and treat parents in, in our country. In the book, I talk about how the labor provided by parents and the money provided by parents amounts to about $5 trillion per year. So raising kids is really the biggest industry in our economy. It's bigger than healthcare. It's bigger than all other industries, communications, transportation. But we don't treat it like this juggernaut economic powerhouse industry. We treat it like kind of a, a second, you know, an afterthought, a backwater. And I think shifting that mentality to recognize that building skills in kids so that they can enter adulthood with confidence and able to contribute to the best of their ability. That activity of building all those complicated skills is very hard and sophisticated and time-consuming and expensive work. And it's wonderful that parents are shouldering this to the best of their ability right now, but they really need more support. And that's what the book is all about, shifting people's mentality to appreciate that work and support it a lot more aggressively.
1: Right. And and to that point, um, I want to actually share something from, um, Chapter 4 of the book, Why Parents Can't Build Skills on Their Own. You talk about the financial aspect in that chapter, Nate, and you say this, and this is one thing – I think a lot of times we do not think about, you write, the problem is money, parents' money, namely the lack of it. We tend to fixate on K-12 school budgets as a cover for how we collectively fund our children's development as a society. But as we have seen throughout this book, we neglect the much more important and more unequal realities faced by the people with the greatest burden of child-skill building parents. Simply put, many parents do not have enough money to make big investments in children. And that, again, goes to the point that you're making about um, how, how politics sometimes plays a role in this. So I want to talk about what that aspect has been like for you to hear from, uh, Nate, because you give some great examples of what some people are trying to do um, to help bridge those gaps. But what has it been like for you to have that acknowledged by other parents as to what they are up against when it comes to raising children?
0: Well, in talking to parents, in that chapter, I actually argued um, that while money is an important factor, it's maybe not as big a factor as we think. The real bigger problem in terms of unequal opportunity for kids is that a lot of parents don't don't have the the professional and the life experiences to really help their kids navigate educational and healthcare opportunities. And it has nothing to do with parents' lack of of concern for their kids. It has nothing to do with parents' lack of, you know, all kinds of virtue and devotion to their kids. It's just that building skills in kids is a lot more like, you know, building a house or flying an airplane. It's a complicated set of activities to build conflict resolution and math and reading and logic and, you know, persistence and overcoming all these weird psychological barriers that we, that are involved in modern workplaces. And, It's okay that parents aren't necessarily able to do this on their own. We need to provide more professional support through teachers, tutors, counselors, local professionals from people's local communities that affluent families are already relying on, but that a lot more parents could benefit from. And so it's not just about differences in parental income. It's also about differences in access to complex kinds of professional support. And to get that, parents are going to need a lot more political power because it is expensive and we need we need taxpayers to start funding it more generously, just like they fund health care for senior citizens through very popular programs such as Medicare. Yeah. And and I think to that point
1: also, Nate, what you're able to do again in talking about these examples, you, you you just mentioned the course Medicare and I think a lot of times when people think about that, they think about the benefits. Of course it is something that is very contentious for some when it comes to thinking about programs like that. So I want to talk about the balancing act here because, you know, there will be some who will argue, as you probably have heard, that, yeah, that sounds great, but who's going to pay for that? You know, how is that going to, you know, it's great that we want to be able to provide this assistance, provide this help, but how is this going to be handled? Do you think that sometimes becomes the sticking point for so many people needing these conversations instead of thinking about the consequences of not acting at all?
0: Absolutely, Cyrus. Yes. That is the biggest sticking point, not only with conservatives, but with, you know, all kinds of reasonable folks, reasonable conservatives, moderates, liberals, you know, Medicare is expensive and it's causing fiscal problems, which I freely acknowledge. But I do think investing in kids is a little different than uh, some other government activities. For many of these programs, historically, they really have paid for themselves. They build additional skills in kids by providing additional opportunities that they that kids wouldn't receive otherwise and that leads them to have more successful careers as teachers you know as scientists as researchers as entrepreneurs as police officers and that means they pay more in taxes and that benefits all of us and they pay so much more in taxes that these programs wind up paying for themselves so i'm trying to shift people's attitude to see investing in kids sort of more like fixing a flat tire or fixing a hole in your roof where Yeah, it's expensive. You might have to sacrifice other things to pay for it, but it's crazy not to do it, and it's going to be much more expensive over time to not do it. Yeah.
1: And you address this really in depth, uh, Nate, in the chapter six, getting more by asking for less, which is why I brought that up because you gave the comparison when it comes to Medicare and then, of course, getting into the idea of family care and what it is. And I love that you say this, if we focus on the tax benefits alone and ignore all these other profound benefits, family care would increase future tax revenue by so much it would simply pay for itself. What does that mean? It means that for taxpayers starting their working life in the year that family care became law, the program will be expected to lower their lifetime tax burden or alternatively to increase the receipt of valuable public services such as high-quality roads, schools, health care, and military security. So I, I, I want to talk about that because I think, again, we don't think about how all these things are interconnected, right? And because I think as as you talk about in that chapter, which is why I made a note of it, Nate, is that, look, there there's a lot being asked already of parents. If you know, the benefit of asking less of them and being able to help them is actually something that's going to benefit all. Is that also part of the argument you've been able to make with this book that it's not just the parents that benefit, we as a society benefit as well if we take care of
0: them? Absolutely, yes. If Sometimes we view raising kids as a little bit of a zero-sum game or like you know, your kids are your problem or your, you know, your challenge. We, we never want to talk about kids as a problem, of course, but, you know, raising your kids is your responsibility. A lot of people feel that way in America, and I understand that. But there is simply no getting around the fact that if I raise a kid who doesn't have a good job and who falls back on government support benefits and who um, has worse health and relies on public, publicly subsidized health care – we all will pay a price for that, because we if my kid gets you know has a higher income they, they will pay higher taxes, and those taxes go to fund roads and military security and bridges and all all this stuff that I mentioned in the book in the, in the quote that you, you nicely read there um, so people might not like the idea that our children are sort of are, we all kind of own the success and failure of each other's children. They might not like that idea ideologically but fiscally, financially, there is no getting around it. And so I want to encourage people to kind of embrace that, accept it. We live in a modern society, which all across the world will have at minimum 20%, at maximum 50, 55% tax revenue. And that means no matter what, we have a direct interest in helping each other raise successful, independent children as best we can. And we know from the history of our attempts to do this with publicly financed programs that we really can make major progress in this area if we get the political power to force our politicians to take action.
1: Uh, last thing I want to talk to you about, Nate, to that point that you just making. It's so interesting that you're bringing these up because there's things that I made notes of when I was reading here. And that's, you, there's a lot of history in this book that I had no idea about. And I'm sure for our audience out there, and again, we're going to let our audience know how they can get their copy of The Parent Trap. You know, I had never heard of the U.S. Children's Bureau before. I had never heard of the National Congress of Mothers before. Talk to us about how this history kind of helped you in, for one, writing the book, but also being able to share through the book what has been done and what can be done again.
0: I had so much fun learning about this history. I'm so happy you liked it, Cyrus. I, what happened was I was writing this book, and I have an academic background, and I was about to just launch into my arguments, And I took a breath and read it and thought, you know what, this is going to be um, a little bit dry for people. It's going to be a hard pill to swallow. So I wanted to open the book with more drama and more personalities. And that led me down this road of understanding our history a little bit more. And the Children's Bureau you mentioned is this really inspiring story of early in the 20th century, there was this federal um, bureau called the Children's Bureau that was started through the Women's Progressive Movement, um, women were starting to get uh, to, politi- to get a lot more political power in our country, and um, it was this this giant flagship enterprise of women leaders in our country trying to tackle what was one of the most grotesque problems of modern society at the time, which was infant mortality and The men in charge were just not taking it that seriously meanwhile. All, most families in America were going to have a child die. Can you imagine that, Cyrus? That is what life used to be like. And so the Children's Bureau really understood this was a foundational problem, and they did transformational research to try to start documenting where this problem was better and worse and start to, started to take action in terms of public health measures and parental education movements and cleaner milk initiatives. To try to take action, and they, the best evidence we have from historical research is that these efforts did ma- did have some positive impact. And they, they, it was just it's just a really cool story of these early women leaders taking charge to solve a fundamental social problem. And you mentioned another you know, another part of the history that you found interesting, the, the National Congress of Mothers. I didn't know that that was the forebear of today's National Parent Teacher Association, the, the good old mm-hmm. PTA. And yeah. um, I I find it really interesting how that that organization today may not be living up to its potential in in terms of providing a large bipartisan family advocacy group, more akin to the the American Association of Retired People. And I talk about, you know, a different strategy that an organization like that could take to really um, tap into the the, the latent political power of parents more effectively.
1: So I always like to kind of zero in, uh, Nate, for our audience as to the who. Um, So we're we're talking a lot about this topic about, of course, the challenges that parents face. We talk about the need for there to be some, some help for them. We talked about where that help can come from. Who would you say is the ideal audience for The Parrot Trap? Who did you write the book for? I wrote the book for people.
0: I wrote the book for parents because I think it helps parents forgive themselves in some respect. It, it, I, I, when I showed the book to my father, he had an, a reaction that, that honestly made me tear up. You know, he, He's had some challenges as a, as a son and with his own father, and his family has had some challenges. And he, he said the book helped him forgive his parents, because he, he started to appreciate just how huge and overwhelming a task they faced. And I found that really moving. So that, that has been motivating. And um, I wrote the book also very much for policymakers and activists and students who are choosing career paths, because I think people don't appreciate just how big a positive impact it would have on our country if we made large scale investments in helping kids build skill. I'm talking about noticeable differences. Like today, Lower-income and working-class kids reach adulthood with a much smaller basket of skills than more affluent kids on average. Not everybody, for sure, but on average. And that's why lower-income kids grow up to earn a lot less money and have a lot less successful careers than rich kids. If we did a program like Family Care, like I I describe in the book, we would largely eliminate that, that pattern. We would live in a new kind of America where class, did not dictate your professional destiny to nearly the same degree. And I find that inspiring. And I, I wrote the book to inspire people in positions of authority and power to act on that kind of potential.
1: I think that's why this conversation is so important, Nate, which is why I'm glad we have you here to talk about it. Again, everyone, Nate G. Hilger has been our guest. The book is The Parent Trap, and then the subtitle is How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. It is available through our friends at Amazon.com or through your favorite uh, local bookstore. If they don't have it, I know they'd be more than happy to order it for you. Nate, I uh, really appreciate you stopping by. How can our audience stay connected with you?
0: They can follow me on Twitter at nate-g-hilger.com. Nate underscore underscore you can find all my other contact information at my website, natehilger.com. Um, so, yes, yeah, Cyrus, thanks for your really thoughtful question. I really appreciate the opportunity to share the book with your audience today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Uh, it was a pl- pleasure, Stephanie Alma, and I really appreciate you stopping by. I definitely want to thank our friend Lisa Warren for setting up this chat with us for today, and thank you, our audience, for tuning in to another great segment of Conversations Live. Until next time, I'm your host, Cyrus Webb. Thank as always, enjoy your day, enjoy your life, enjoy your world. Thank you all for choosing Conversations Live. Let's go make today amazing. Take care.